Howdy. I'm Eric from Antioch, California. Hey, I'm Kevin from Victor, New York. I'm Luke from Seattle. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Lake, I have to tell you that at this point, it is taking all of my self-control not to just spend the rest of the time in our interview just doing funny vocal warm-ups. Listen, I <laughs> am with you. We could talk forever and just do weirdo kind of... I mean, I mean, you know, it could go on forever. <laughs> it's bullseye. That woman you just heard doing vocal warm-ups is Lake Bell. She's the writer, director, and star of a really funny new movie called In a World. It's about a woman trying to make it in the voiceover business. Voiceover, in general, is such a big part of our lives. Voices telling you what to buy, what movies to see, what kind of bank to trust. You know, I mean, there's just so many people telling you what to do. And by the way, women don't get the opportunity to do that as much. We'll talk about her new movie and about some of her favorite accents. She has a ton later on in the show. But first... I'm going to talk to the comedian Kumail Nanjiani. He's come a long way since we had him do stand-up on our show a few years ago. He just put out his first comedy special, Beta Mail. He just got a role in Mike Judge's new HBO show, Silicon Valley. He's co-hosting a new show on Comedy Central next year. And he soaks up his free time, and I'm sure he has a lot of it, with a hit video game podcast called The Indoor Kids. Plus, Andrew Nas recommends some new rap music for you to check out. Sergio Diaz from the legendary Brazilian psych rock group Os Mutantes talks about how Elvis changed his life, and I open a window into the crazy world of the confidence man. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Kumail Nanjiani is your typical budding stand-up star. The stand-up comedy show he co-created is coming to Comedy Central next year. He's had successful runs on Portlandia and Franklin and Bash. His first hour-long stand-up special, Beta Mail, was just released. He's got a hit podcast about video games. And like most people in his position, he was born in the sometimes war-torn city of Karachi, Pakistan, and has had never seen comedy when he went off to college in Iowa at the age of 18. So maybe the last part is a little bit different from typical. But even a distinctive guy has some very pedestrian concerns. Here he is in his new special talking about a ride on Coney Island's famous roller coaster, the Cyclone. So when I got done, I found out that the Cyclone is the oldest functional roller coaster in the world. Yeah, I wish I'd known that before I risked my life. Do you know what year the Cyclone was? This roller coaster, the Cyclone, was made in the year 1927. Holy is right. They should change the name of that ride to 1927, because that fact is way scarier than Cyclones. 1927. We didn't know anything back then, by the way. We thought cigarettes were good for us. Those are the people make... To give you the perspective, this is true. This is a fact. You can go home and Google this. Sliced bread came on the market in 1928. So when people describe something as, you know, when they're like, oh, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, they mean it's the greatest thing in an unimaginably long time. This was made the year before that. 
Kumail, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I want to know, we, I have never talked to you extensively about uh, your pre-stand-up comedy life, so I want to talk a little bit about that. Sure. What, how old were you when you moved to the States? Yeah, I was about 18. What was comedy to you when you were growing up? Well, I mean, the stuff I really liked was, I mean, Ghostbusters, one of my favorites, Gremlins, uh, all, did you watch? Murray. Did you watch Ghostbusters in English dubbed or with subtitles? I watched it in English because the plan was always for me to come to America, so they always had us watch English movies, and I learned a lot of my English from watching movies. So that's why when I came here, like colloquialisms and stuff, really, uh, I was able to catch on pretty quick. So those are the comedies I really liked. Um, Pakistani comedy, they have these sort of stage plays. I think it's different now, but that's what was big. Then everyone would watch these stage plays. But I never liked them. I thought they were like so broad and big. And I know that sounds very pretentious, but I just, I just never, it never made me laugh, you know. So was it, uh, did you move to the States specifically to go to college or did your folks follow? No, I came alone to go to college on my own uh, to Iowa. And I, uh, my parents didn't, uh, it was eight years later that my parents moved. So when I moved, it was on my own, and I landed at the airport in Des Moines, and I was like, oh, what have I done? Did you have family in the States, or did you choose Iowa because there was someone there? Well, okay, here's the weird thing. No, my family, I had like an uncle. I still have an uncle in Florida. He was in Georgia at the time. But um, no, and here's the thing is that when you're in another country, when you think of America, you think of it as like one place because you you think all of it. I thought all of it was New York or L.A. because that's all I would see. I didn't really understand how big and different parts of it were. So when I went to Iowa, I sort of got off the plane kind of expecting it to be like L.A. or New York. And it really wasn't. <laughs> really? Yeah, very different. <laughs> you did not find that your expectations based on the film Beverly Hills Cop <laughs> matched up to your lifestyle It exactly in Iowa? was. There aren't that many like movies about Iowa. I mean, there's that one, The Field, Field of, of Dreams. Dreams. That's it. Yeah. That's it. It's not as advertised. Why did you come to the United States? Well, the plan was always, since I was a little kid, to like... Because, you know, Pakistan's very poor and dangerous, blah, blah, blah all the stuff that... You think of in your head when you think of Pakistan. Um, so the plan was always to leave. And um, yeah, you mentioned that Pakistan was and sometimes is a dangerous place to live. Did you feel that as a kid? Well, okay, I didn't really think of it as dangerous. It was just all I knew. It was home. You know, now when I think back on it, obviously. You know, we had rules about you don't leave the house after a certain time. You obviously don't go to certain areas ever. There were times where, you know, things got bad, bad and we would just not go to school, which was kind of awesome. So, like, every month I would say there were a couple days where we would just stay home and we were kind of excited about it. I remember I would turn on the news and hear about, like, violence happening somewhere and be like, it's kind of like a snow day, you know? <laughs> we called them blood days. We didn't. <laughs> Let's play another clip from your special beta mail. My guest is Kumail Nanjiani. Um, in this in this clip, you're talking about, and, and you're a, the host of a podcast about video games and a video game enthusiast of note. Um, and in this clip from your special, you're talking about this game called Call of Duty, which is a war game that is uh, noted for its... Uh, sort of intense realism. And one of the settings in this game, that, which is to say one of the places where the action takes place, is actually your hometown of, of Karachi. That's right. 
Okay, so the language you speak in Pakistan is Urdu. That's the name of the language you speak, Urdu. But all the street signs in Karachi and Call of Duty are in Arabic. Yeah, it's a completely different language. <laughs> and I know it does not seem like a big deal. But this game took three years to make. If you look at it, the graphics are perfect. You can see individual hair on people's heads. When they run, they sweat. When they run, their shoelaces bounce. All they had to do was Google Pakistan language. <laughs> <laughs> they were literally like, what language do they speak in Pakistan? I don't care. <laughs> I can't get his sideburns even. I think that, that video game joke, that Call of Duty joke that you do... Uh, Kumail, in, in your new special, Beta Mail, is a really lovely example of... Uh, what's interesting to me about it is that it is... You know, it is... It's an indictment of this horrible cultural insensitivity in this game, which is built upon, you know, insensitivity. I mean, it's a game about realistic killing. Sure, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But on the other hand, the... The reason that you get to tell that joke isn't just, oh, I'm from Karachi, so I can say, tell this joke. It's also, I actually love playing this video game, so I get to tell this joke. Yeah, exactly. I always try and sort of define myself as when I'm on stage as by what I like rather than what I hate. So I always think it's more interesting to not know what you're take on something is, you know, I think it's always more interesting to have that sort of, um, uh, you know, like with Call of Duty, uh, that tension, I think, is good. If I say I hate it and I just talk about something I hate, that's not as interesting as, you know, really wanting to play it. And it's true. I mean, it's I own that game. It's a good game. I find it harder and harder to play that as I'm getting older and becoming sort of more sensitive. But it really speaks to, as you said, uh, the way people think of, like, that part of the world, it's all the same, you know, sort of this brown mass over there. And I think this little uh, uh, thing in the game really crystallized that for me. Let's talk about when you came to the United States for college. I mean, college, going away to college is a sort of intense and distressing thing for anybody, I think. Yeah. What was it like for you? I hated it at first. Uh, I'd never been away from my family, really. I was pretty much kind of a, you know, mama's boy. So I missed my parents intensely. So that was that was really tough. And then, you know, being in a different culture, it was very intimidating, very scary. There were girls around everywhere. I hadn't really been around girls that I wasn't related to. So I was very scared. But what were the what were the specific differences that that scared you? Well, we didn't shake hands with girls, so that was a really... I was 18 when I first shook hands with a girl, and that felt really super weird to do, you know? And guys and girls hug when they see each other. That that felt really weird. And that whole thing of... It's a very particularly American thing, the figure out what you are, what you want to do, make something of yourself. Philosophically, that was the biggest thing, was like I'd never really thought about what I wanted to do with my life. I never. That wasn't really something that was important. To me growing up, like... What did you expect when you were 17 was going to be your life? I thought I was going to be, uh, eventually become a doctor or, you know, honestly, like a computer programmer guy. Because I was good at math and I was like, oh, you know, computers are the next big thing. I didn't even own a computer, but I figured that's what I would do and that's what I was. I was studying philosophy 
and computer science. So I sort of was doing what I wanted to do and then sort of was doing what I thought I should do. The classic combination yeah. of computer science and philosophy. You know, actually, they're not that different, really. Well, there's flowcharts in both, a lot of flowcharts. Well, I mean, it is. It's like you look at a problem and you try and find a solution to it, and there's a bunch of different ways to approach it. And philosophy, at least... You know, sort of like arguing your point and, um, you know, not so different from figuring out, figuring out an algorithm for computer science. But I realized with both, like I was pretty good at it, like good enough for college, but not good enough to really be able to be super successful at either thing. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Kumail Nanjiani. We're hearing clips from his new stand-up comedy special, Beta Male. He and fellow comic Jonah Ray also have a new show coming to Comedy Central next year called The Meltdown with Jonah and Kumail. What what was the process you had to go through in order to become a person? What did you have to figure out? Well, I mean, the big, big uh, sort of first rebellion of my life was um, telling my mom that I wasn't going to like marry the person that she wanted me to marry. Uh, and that was something that since I was a little kid was, you know, we have arranged marriage. So my mom would show me jewelry and be like, oh, this will be for the wife I find find for you. So this was really the one thing she'd really been looking forward to. I mean, she's a housewife. You know, she got married when she was 16, had me when I was 17. So for her, the next big thing, her next big job was finding me a wife. Like that's part of her duty as a mother. So that was... Uh, one of the first things that I realized, I think sophomore year, I was like, oh, I can't just marry someone that my parents find for me. So it took me about a year of heavy existential crisis to finally like tell my mom that. How did, you de- how did you decide that for yourself? That I couldn't marry someone they found for me? Was it all those hugs that you've been? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was shaking hands with so many girls. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> they were great hands. <laughs> Soft, full of promise. <laughs> and I just wanted to shake a few more hands, you know, before I... But sincerely, I mean, that's a really big thing to leave behind. I mean, it's one thing if you were Pakistani-American and you yeah. had, you know, your parents were first-generation immigrants and they had that expectation of you, but you were like, Mom, I grew up at the mall. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't I don't understand your Pakistani ways. Yeah. But, you know, you had lived 18 years of your life in Pakistan and two years of your life in Iowa. No, it it was a really, really rough year. I had a really, really bad year uh, after I'd been in America for two or three years. And mostly it was weird. I mean, that was just one of the uh, side effects of it was that, you know, s- sort of telling my mom I wouldn't marry someone. For me, it was weird because I grew up, I don't want to get too specific into the religion stuff, but I grew up very religious Muslim, like very religious Muslim. And, you know, when you're very religious Muslim, that's your whole life. It's not just a religion. It really is a way of life. I mean, there's percentages like tax percentages. You eat with your right hand. You walk into the bathroom with your left hand. So it's like it really is like an instruction booklet for life, you know. And I think that's part of why there isn't as much of a uh, emphasis on figuring out what you are because you're already Muslim. Everything else is just details. You know, you're doing what you do, but really Islam is the thing and that's your identity. So um, having having that and seeing the world sort of through that one lens, coming here and seeing that others' uh, takes on the world are possible was really scary. And it wasn't that the other sort of uh, views of how the world works were felt more right to me. It's just the idea that there were other ones possible 
really made me sort of think about uh, the way I'd been thinking about everything, you know. So it was like a pretty big, because I was like, well, all these people are great people and they all have very different religions and some of them are atheists. And seeing that and then meeting gay people and having them be cool and meeting Jewish people and having them be cool. Not that Islam says that, you know, any specific thing, but certain interpret people have interpreted it to sort of be uh, against those kinds of people. So it really was like everything I knew about the world felt like sort of a lie, you know. So it was a big, rough year. Was there anything that was uh, going on as you were making that adjustment that you thought was really great and wonderful? I mean, ultimately, when it was done, that year was rough, but uh, sort of then having to decide who I wanted to be and follow my own path and then find a woman that I loved, uh, I mean, ultimately, it was a very beautiful and wonderful thing for me and really... um, Yeah, it was really, really a great thing, but it it was a lot of stress while it was going on. I'll say this quick thing. Uh, The first time I ever sort of had a weird crisis was I was writing this uh, paper, this philosophy paper on uh, the different ways that the West and Islam view religion. And there's a lot of differences here. It's more about romantic love, Pakistan. I mean, Islam, it's more sort of a coming of two families together. Uh, That sort of thing, romantic love, is not uh, the most important thing. But I was reading this thing, and this one interpretation of the Quran in the Quran said, "If your wife doesn't listen to you, you're, you're allowed to beat her lightly." Um, and I don't want to say that's the right translation, whatever. I've gotten into arguments with people about it, but I looked up a bunch of different translations, and they all said that. And I was like, and I knew that was wrong, you know, even though I was religious. Like I knew for a fact that that was wrong. So having that sort of thing being this book that um, I believe to be completely perfect was uh, really scary and that was the first time I actively thought about um, all of that stuff. It seems like a long way to go from even from thinking I'm going to be uh, not a religious Muslim who works as a computer scientist to to go all the way to I'm going to become a professional stand-up comedian. Like, that's a long road. It, There's a lot of people who have a hard time getting to I'm going to be a professional stand-up comedian who are raised as, you know, raised on, you know, Shia LaBeouf style <laughs> to follow their dreams above all else. Which is the height of comedy, Shia yeah. LaBeouf. I think we can all agree. Probably America's greatest comic voice. <laughs> I think what did help me, though, was that I really sort of had to sort of remake myself. I didn't know who I was anymore. I didn't have an identity. So it sort of gave me this desperation in trying to like define myself that and honestly stand up comedy was the only thing I'd ever that I'd tried that I liked doing and that I was good at, you know. I mean I was good at video games, but I couldn't figure out a way to make a living doing that. So I think it sort of helped me the desperation and having this like hole in myself trying to fill it with something and then being like, oh, I'm a stand-up comedian. That's what I can do and I'm good at it and I love doing it. So it sort of was kind of a natural thing. It never felt like a weird decision. It just it always felt kind of right. Let's play another clip from, I guess, Kumail Nanjiani's new comedy special, Beta Male. Um, uh, he, here he is talking about uh, another thing he loves, which is movies and the uh, the persistent tropes therein. 
You guys know that thing where they try and sneak in like creepy stuff, dark stuff into kids' movies? You know what I'm talking about? Like they try and like sneak in grown-up stuff? You know, like in Lion King, they say in the sandstorm you can read the word sex. Yeah? Or like in Wizard of Oz, they say in the corner you can see somebody hanging. I wish sometimes it would happen the other way around. You know, like, it would be like, uh, did you guys see that movie Hostel? You know that scene where they cut the guy's Achilles tendon and he's bleeding everywhere and he can't walk? In the corner, you can see a kid tasting cotton candy for the first time. <laughs> um, I, I, your, wonder, your sense of wonder in that clip is, is <laughs> immensely charming. Um, what do, you, what do you have to do to, to hang on to being that person that you are and that you, that you grew up as? It's tough, you know, because um, Pakistan is very... Uh, being Muslim, I think, is, being part of, is part of being Pakistani, being religious Muslim. Pakistan, I believe, is still the only country created for a religion. Pakistan means land of the pure. So I think once you sort of... Lose your grip on certain things. Um, it's hard to define yourself. A country that defines itself by a religion. Uh, or, with the exception of Israel, I suppose. With the exception of Israel, right. I guess. But we don't. Pakistanis don't <laughs> right. count Israel as sure. a country. Sure. I'm sorry. I just hear wah, wah, wah when you say that. <laughs> you know, our passport actually says you, to get a Pakistani passport, you have to sign a thing that says that Israel is not a real country. They give you a piece of paper that does it say other stuff or just they're just like, okay, this says you don't have any diseases. Yeah. You've had your immunizations. Israel's not a country. Yep. It's, it had two things. It said Israel's not a country and that Ahmadis or Qaedis, which is a very specific sect of Islam, you have to say that they're not Muslim. So to, to get a Pakistani passport, you have to agree to these two things. You can be Ahmadi and you can be Qaeda, you know, you can be of that sect, but you have to admit that that sect is not part of Islam. So there's some weird political agendas. It's hard. I don't know how I identify myself now. I think that's the weird thing. And I think when you when I have kids, that's going to be a concern because I I haven't been back to Pakistan in 14 years. So it's really hard to call myself Pakistani. I don't consider myself American. So, you know, I, the closest thing is like a comedian, I guess. That's the weird thing. I think I don't really consider myself part of any group. And I think that is a good thing that religion or patriotism can give you, is giving you the sense that you're part of this big group and we all think alike in certain ways. Um, I think that can be a good comfort. And I feel like I don't really have that. What do you think it means to identify yourself as a comedian for you? It, I mean, even that is like, it's 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 hard to sort of um, really catch on to that because it's just part of who you are as a person as you do comedy. I would say most of my friends are comedians. So I say I'm part of the community of comedy, but it's hard every day, you know, like when I'm drinking water. If if you're Pakistani, when you're drinking water, you're Pakistani. But if you're a comedian, when you're drinking water, you're just a guy drinking water, you know. 
Kumail Nanjiani, uh, his special is called Beta Male. You can not only get it on CD and DVD, you can also get it from Comedy Central's new direct download website, which is ccdirect.comedycentral.com. He's also, in addition to this special, his uh, show Meltdown with Jonah Ray is coming to Comedy Central early next year. And he's also featured in the cast of Mike Judge's new show, Silicon Valley, which is coming sometime next year to HBO. After a break, Andrew Nas will share a couple of new rap music recommendations for you. Then Sergio Diaz from Os Mutantes will talk about the song that had him jumping up and down on the couch for an entire afternoon. You're listening to Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is supported by MailChimp, building technology for people and businesses around the world to design and send email newsletters. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp, email marketing for everyone. Bullseye is all about the best in culture, and bringing us some tips on the best new rap music this week is our hip-hop friend, Andrew Nas. Hey, Andrew, how's it going? Uh, it's going pretty good, Jesse. Let's talk about your first recommendation, uh, a song by Earl Sweatshirt of Odd Future featuring Casey Veggies and Vince Staples called Hive. Breaking news, that's less important when the Lakers lose his lead in that baby food. Hairs trying to make it through, fish netted legs for them eyes that she catered to. Ride dirty is the f- sky that you praying to. So here I sit, eye in a pyramid, God spit it like it's true serum in that beer and then disappear again reappear bearded on top of a leer steering it into the kids ear again provider of the backdrop music for the crack rock user and the mascot earl rod and a skin kneecap on a black top salivary glands lighter fluid for the matchbox striking wait wait who the hell was better than boy oh boy i'm bad as burnt so uh, about a year ago, when Odd Future were first coming to national prominence, uh, Earl Sweatshirt was in a reform school in like American Samoa or something like that. And this is his big single since Odd Future blew up. Tell me what you like about it. It's really dark and bleak and it lurches and it's scary and it's incredibly well written. I've had a chance to talk to Earl a little bit recently and... For a rapper his age, he's like acutely aware of the craft of rapping and is very much a student of how to make rap songs. And I think you can kind of tell that based solely on the fact that like everything he writes is incredibly complex in a way that, you know, not a lot of rap is anymore. You know, it's very much stuff that you're going to have to rewind to catch what he says. Let's talk about your second recommendation, a song from a Chicago rapper named Chief Keef called Go to Jail. Chief Keef was also very much in the news uh, six months or, or a year ago. His music is very in- is often very intensely violent, and he's a teenage kid, and it's just a real brutal, intense thing. And he ended up getting caught up going to juvenile detention for a few months, and he just got out and released this record. It's tough to describe, but let's take a listen to it. Oh, 
tears on my face and touch it. I'm like, what's this that for? Unless you finish your submission, so don't touch my pistol. Cause I don't wanna have the blood. Cause I don't wanna have to go. You know, it's amazing. This auto-tuned rap phenomenon has gone from imitating a song to being like an auto-tuned traditional rap, you know, where where melodies introduced into a rap to this, which is almost, I mean, it reminds me of like the bridge of a Van Morrison song where it's not even words at some point. It's just kind of, it's just kind of these noises coming from deep within someone yeah it's incredible actually when i sent you guys that song i was a little worried that you wouldn't know which words were the curse words to bleep (laughs) it's almost a psychedelic thing yeah it's totally like i genuinely think that chief keef is making some of the great psychedelic music of our time um i don't know how intentional that is i know his general i mean he never was a rapper with a high level of quality control and it seems to have deteriorated even more since he's come home but like it's insane like I can lose myself within single syllables of that song like it's really incredibly trippy music Andrew Nas writes the blog Cocaine Blunts and Hip Hop Tapes he also writes a column for Pitchfork and his writing appears in a whole pile of other outlets and you can hear him here on Bullseye regularly his recommendations, Earl Sweatshirt's song Hive from his new album Doris, and Chief Keef's Go to Jail, which you can find online on his SoundCloud. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you've only ever heard of one Brazilian rock band, the odds are that band is Os Mutantes. The band formed in the 1960s and combined South American bossa nova and tropicalia with the blistering psychedelic guitar of a guy named Sergio Diaz. The band broke up in the late 70s. But over the next couple of decades, American record collectors and musicians fell in love with Os Mutantes. Guys like Kurt Cobain, Beck, David Byrne. The pressure for a reunion was on, and it reached its peak right around 2006. That year, the band got back together to perform, and eventually they started to record new music. Os Mutantes have put out a couple of albums since their reunion. The newest came out just a few months ago. It's called Fool Metal Jack. Guitarist Sergio Diaz's musical calling came early. In the mid-1950s, teenagers all over Brazil were starting to hear American rock and roll music for the first time. But Sergio was still only five or six. He was surrounded by music, but it wasn't the music of his choosing. His parents picked the records that were played in the house. Classical, mostly. Then one day, he was at his cousin's house. She put on a 45. And I just went out of my head. The song that changed Sergio Diaz's life was Jailhouse Rock by Elvis Presley. 
the great thing in the world it is to discover. I mean, there's nothing better. I think it, it is like the f first time you kiss a girl. Wow, what is this? You know, and, and it was like a, a sample of heaven. something that entered me in a way that any other music ever did. And I was jumping up and down on the couch for the entire afternoon, listening to the song over and over and over and over, and just throwing a pillow up and down as if it was a guitar. I didn't even imagine that I would be a guitar player then. It throws you off a little bit. When he catches the rhythm, is fantastic. Now the solo. That blew my mind. I was making the entire show, you know, on my own and jumping on the couch. See how easy he sings. It's so natural. No sweat there. No, it's, but you see the intensity of it. It's perfection. That's why he was the king. I'm a rocker, you know, so I play rock and roll. Jailhouse Rock, I think it was the jump start on, on my, my engine, you know. I think that was the big punch. The first bug of rock and roll that entered my veins. Then I was myself. After that, I picked. I became an individual. That's why I would say that it did change my life. That was Sergio Diaz of the Brazilian psychedelic rock band Os Mutantes. Their recent album is called Fool Metal Jack. The band will be touring the United States starting in November. You can find details at mutantes.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Lake Bell spent the first 10 years of her career mostly in what you might call beautiful lady roles. Best friends in romantic comedies are run on the network drama Boston Legal, which she was good at. More recently, she's made her name in ensemble comedies like the completely insane Children's Hospital on Adult Swim. She's also good at that. But it turns out that what she came to Hollywood to do after drama school in England was voice acting, which, as it turns out, she wasn't that good at. 
But while she wasn't booking any parts, she got a peek into the strange cloistered world of actors who we don't see. When she wrote her new film, In a World, it was that experience she drew upon. It's a story of a dialect coach whose father is a voiceover legend. Dialect coaching isn't paying the bills. And in the scene from the movie, her dad gives her the boot in a kind of a humiliating way. And the truth of the matter is, it probably wouldn't help you anyway, because let's face it, the industry does not crave a female yeah, sound. Yeah, Dad, you may be painfully aware of that my whole well, life. Not I being sexist, to... that's just the truth. Okay. And this whole voice-cracking problem you've grown into isn't doing any favors either. But here's what I'm trying to say, sweetheart, okay? You should stick with the accents. I mean, that's your thing. That's what you're good at. What was that great, that Russian Star Wars thing you used to do as a kid? Yeah, I know the one you're talking about. But, Dad, can we... No, no, what was it? It was... Don't make me do it Come on. I don't want to do it right now. Please, let me hear it. These are not the droids you're looking for. (laughs) I just love that. It's so random. So when she finds herself unexpectedly in the movie trailer game, she ends up having to battle her father and a slightly sleazy former lover for vocal supremacy. Bell wrote, directed, and stars in In a World. It's in theaters now. Lake Bell, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. I, I kind of, I can't even believe I'm going to start this way, but I do want to say and defend myself gently that I wasn't totally lameo when it came to doing voiceover. It was <laughs> it, when I came here. I really, I will say it was because, and this is what I found so compelling about the the world was that it was so clicky. It, it was as if. I, there was no room for for me and and no one was really interested in opening the doors to allow someone else to to sort of reap the benefits of of that world and that in in itself becomes really sort of interesting also the hierarchy that was in, involved why did you want to do it when you left acting school? I, I really wanted to do it as a supplemental income thing. <laughs> I heard someone told me along the lines that, that uh, along the way that you could make you know so much money doing it, and it was um, it was something I felt like I was good at. I could do a bunch of accents and dialects. I was all prepared from from college, uh, where we did radio plays in England. You know, where it was very st- it was still relevant then, um, and you know, c- creating characterization via a blind voice was incredibly liberating to me and interesting. I mean, you could be anyone, and that's very liberating for an actor, especially for a character actor. Let's let's talk a little bit about your life before you became an actor. I read somewhere that you, when flying between your parents' houses in, in New York and Florida, your, your folks were divorced, that you that you would try and do your best to convince the flight attendants to let you make the safety announcements? Yes. Is that actually, did it ever actually work? Okay, so it was such a great moment in my life. It was really my first VO gig. Um, But yes, you're (laughs) right. When my parents were divorced, I'd go back and forth every other weekend on the same service from um, Melbourne, Florida, stopped in Atlanta, and then went on to New York City. And I just remembered this power that these mysterious, sophisticated ladies had where they would close a curtain and then sit on a jump seat and then read from a book and become this disembodied voice telling us what to do in case of an emergency. You know, it was a a tremendous job. And they did seem so bored. I mean, they really, (laughs) you know what I mean? I felt like, guys, come on. What a great opportunity to really spice up this flight. I mean, it seems everybody seems so darn bored, you know. So um, at 12 years old, (laughs) with an unaccompanied minor badge around my neck, I finally got in there and said, 
hey guys, ladies, would you would you let me take a crack at it? <laughs> and um, and this was obviously during a different time where I'm sure security breaches would not allow me to do this now. But they did in fact let me sit on that jump seat, pull out that book, and read what to do in case of an emergency. And I thought I was sounding so sophisticated and so profound. And I'm sure everyone was just giggling and thinking, like, what's an 11-year-old doing telling me what to do in case, you know, there's a water landing? Like, I have to say, as a grown adult man, 32 years old, who has his own NPR radio show, it's possible that the highlight of my career is when I talked one theater at Bumbershoot in Seattle into letting me record their please turn off your pagers message. Like, it's just, it's still so you. exciting. I'm with you, brother. I am with you. I I agree. I think there's something so, I don't know. It's, 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 and by the way, women don't get that, the opportunity to do that as much, you know, to be that kind of authoritative, you know, let me tell you what to do in case of an emergency and turn off your cell phones, you know, and all those. Th- I, I, I'm with you. I love it. I think it's so cheeky and um, voiceover in general is such a big part of our lives. And I think we forget that there are all of these, you know, if you become aware of voiceover, then as you let alone, I mean, obviously, visual cues are constant. You've got a constant barrage of of um, advertisement in your face. But in your ears, there's a streaming of voices telling you what to buy, what movies to see, what kind of bank to trust, what insurance to take, what kind of pills are wrong to, you know, I mean, there's just so many people telling you what to do. And it's interesting that you know these the job of voiceover is is actually kind of profound and important um you know and and the choices that that companies make to represent themselves i mean for women obviously for 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 tampon commercial they're going to have a woman tell you what to do but then what about a car commercial you could have a male or a female telling you to buy a luxury car but if a man is if it's a man voiceover it's sort of this great uh, hey buy this car and you'll get to be me and then for a woman if you hear her doing it she's sort of hey buy this car and you get to be with me. So, you know, I, I always, I'm always interested in the distinction between what the message is behind the attitude of the voice selling you the product. We'll have the rest of my conversation with Lake Bell after a break. You're listening to Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, everybody. I'm Justin McElroy. I'm Dr. Sydney McElroy. Oh, look at you, doctor. You told me to say it that way. We have a medical history show called Sawbones right here on Maximum Fun, where we talk about all the dumb, hurtful, damaging ways that we've tried to fix people over the years. Have you ever tried to put mercury on a syphilis shanker? Or maybe you tried to drill a hole in your head because you heard it would reduce your blood brain volume? That was dumb. But if you want to know exactly why and know about all the other people that try to do the same dumb thing you did, you can listen to our show every Friday right here on MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Lake Bell wrote, directed, and stars in the new movie In a World. It's about a woman trying to break into the voiceover business. I mentioned that you went to acting school in England and historically, I think English theater training has had more focus on um, what might be described as, and I don't mean this as a put down, as the mechanical elements of acting, which is to say, 
speech and dialect and learning how to fence and ride a horse. And you <laughs> yes, know what I mean? Like, just the things you have to know in order to be a, an actor rather than simply emotional transformation. But first of all, there's nothing simple about emotional transformation. <laughs> You're like, simply emotional transformation. Um, no, I'm just joking. Um, but you know, I, you're absolutely right, because traditionally um, British actors are, you know, being trained for theater, and that is a very physical sport, and it, inquire, it requires uh, endurance and focus and um, much like being a professional athlete. Also, uh, British actors tend to, just on the whole, um, tend to be more intellectual actors, so they act from their head, their neck up. And so a lot of the training has to do with getting into your body and your voice and breath and being able to... Um, you know, sort of encouraging movement and um, creating characterization through your whole self. But, you know, I think, um, you know, like any form of higher education, you take what you would like from it and you make what you want from it. So um, for me, drama school was an incredible endurance test, and I'm most thankful for that um, and also for exposure. You know, it was I was the only American at my college, and I felt um, especially being American – um, and being in England, you feel, you know, we are naturally kind of ethnocentric, let's be honest. And even just when we first started doing dialect work, um, you know, of course, all the foreign foreign students, myself included, had to get rid of their, quote, accents. And because I had this te- terrible American accent. And I was like, are you kidding me? It's you guys. It's you cats with all the accents, you you know, and of course, that was my ethnocentrism coming out. But yeah, so so it was it was it was a great experience, mostly for endurance and exposure. I like the idea of a bunch of uh, English acting students walking around doing a sort of English sketch comedy, American guy voice, which is sort of like a, a black stand up comedian, white guy voice. It's like, hello, Harvey. Yeah, that they do that all the time. I remember during American our American dialect uh, semester, which I aced, by the way. <laughs> um, um, that that was the greatest. Um, and you know, they are all talking like this, and they're putting in the R's everywhere they can. You know, <laughs> it's the weirdest about like really, guys. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and look at my R's for a second. Did you learn any uh, dialects that ended up being your favorite? I definitely think that, like, like Southeast Sanzins, you know what I mean? Like, that was my favorite. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, mainly because uh, I love the attitude behind the Southeast London accent and the salt of the earth kind of nature, the the um, profound realism and uh, sort of energy behind it. It's almost like I when I first moved to England... Um, I was in a, a show called oh, God, oh Essex Girls, and um, I wasn't trained yet. It was my first, really my first kind of scene work. And I said, God, you know, I, I feel really embarrassed to try to do an Essex accent at this point in my training. I, do, I just, it, it feels wrong to to do that. And I said, but I'm listening to it, and, and I hear that there's like a sibilance, and it reminds me of like New York Puerto Rican accent that I grew up with, which, you know, 
you know, talking like that, you know, kind of taking on something, you know, it, like it had a similar taste or something. And so I did the whole I did the whole play, uh, the Essex Girl play, but in, in what I knew in a similar kind of culturation and, and energy and, and attitude and spunk, um, which was like. You know, sort of um, like a put, you know, like a good old, you know. You just, just did like, it as Rosie Perez, is what you're trying to say. I mean, not quite Rosie Perez. I'm not a mimic. I'm not a, a mimicker, <laughs> but I, I wish. I mean, I, that is a whole set of another. That's a whole muscle muscle group. I don't know, but um, I, I have too many friends who are good at that, so um, I wouldn't say that. But like, you know, um, it just had a similar sibilance, and I always thought that was kind of uh, poetic. Fred Melamed's character in uh, the film In a World, he plays your dad, is such a huge, powerful guy. And after I, – I know almost nothing about your dad except for a few offhand mentions of him building uh, uh, some kind of luxury car race track. And so uh, that strikes me as possibly a larger-than-life figure, the guy who would do that. And I wonder what kind of what he was like or is like. Well, it's interesting because his physical self is somewhat lean and mean because obviously to be <laughs> he's actually kind of a, a lean guy. He's not a big physically guy because it's better for race cars. Um, but he <laughs> he is an avid amateur racer and collector my entire life. And then was in real estate development and then started buying uh, race car tracks and developing them. And, yes, he has um, two tracks. One is Virginia International Raceway, um, which is a sort of motorsport resort um, type thing. Um, And uh, I've been sidelines on so many racetracks since I was a kid and going to uh, auto shows with my dad. It was really the only kind of – you know, when you're younger, that was kind of my main communication with my dad was looking at cars, appreciating cars, listening to him about cars and learning and sopping up as much information as I could um, to, in order to then have a later conversation with them. Um, and actually, that's where I found that's where I sort of pulled from uh, for the relationship of the the men and the machismo involved with of the voiceover heavyweights and this sort of male-dominated, uh, you know, slinging swords kind of feeling, because because it was um, it's not dissimilar from the the sort of you know amateur racing circuit where it is male-dominated and there are some ladies who 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 get their 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 way in there, but it's mostly men and um, there's a lot of egos at bay. And uh, a lot of battered egos, and um, I, and you know, hubris and and chip on the shoulder hubris is is always fodder for comedy for me. But I thought, obviously, racing is life or death, whilst voiceover is not. But if, if we took the energy of life and death and applied it to voiceover, it, it I, I felt like it would be funny. Have you uh, driven a race car before? Yes. What's but that that's like? also, I, I mean, I have to by way of being my dad's daughter. <laughs> so what, what's it like <laughs> to drive fault. a race car? I mean, I haven't. I'm, I'm not actually a speed demon. I'm more of a car uh, lover and auto enthusiast in general, but and more the experience of cars. And I love city driving. I like to get really athletic with my driving. Um, but uh, racing, I'm not into as much, um, mainly because it is... 
there are too many other people who are into it. You know, they they want it more than me, and um, it is it is dangerous. But I have you know I've driven Formula two thousands, and um, my brother puts together a, a a sort of group every year, and we go out on the track, and you get to feel what it's like to drive an open wheel um, Formula car, which is you know not a graceful endeavor. It is again athletic, <laughs> um, and but it's a great exercise in focus. Um, and yeah, I do enjoy cars very much. I, I, I write a column. I write the, uh, an, an automotive column for the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, probably, probably America's most beloved automotive column. <laughs> I love, that's amazing. Um, goodness gracious. Um, I'm on hiatus from it right now as I write my second, uh, feature. I, there's there's so many hours in the day. <laughs> have you, have you ever, um, have you ever been in a situation where, um, uh, while driving, you feared for your life in the moment or retrospectively? Hmm. Uh, with me on, at the helm? <laughs> or... oh, either one. Oh, I'm interested in both. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's good or bad, but I've always been uh, very comfortable with someone else driving at great speed. Um, that said, because I grew up with my dad and my brother, who are very talented uh drivers um that said <laughs> when my stepmother was giving birth um unexpectedly when i was a little girl by the way twice this happened with both <laughs> of their children i feel like dad orchestrated this just to have a high speed um <laughs> highway moment because we were in the country in new jersey we had a, a little farmhouse there and both of the darn times we had this where he was in – we were in the country and then all of a sudden my stepmother get, starts to go into labor and it's, kids, everybody get in the car. Everybody, you know, seatbelts, you know. And then all of a sudden with, with Sharon, my stepmother, just breathing <laughs> with the, the, the Lamas and dad driving like a complete maniac. Um, but of course, you trust him because he is a race car aficionado and racer, avid racer. Um, and we were always in like an SUV or something. It's just <laughs> That's not. What I was going to say it's like a Volvo wagon or totally, something. Totally, like a wagon. Where, but Dad would go up on the median, you know, and just <laughs> he would go, you know, in the in the little shoulder that you're not supposed to go in. And um, I remember him passing rigs and you know uh, on the wrong side. And then the cops would always stop us both times. They've got and that somehow whatever Dad said to them, he's like, "My wife's giving birth. I need to get her to the you know to New York ASAP." So then we'd have like a cop um, sort of uh, then, you know, an escort <laughs> giving us permission to go for my dad. I was like, you don't know what you just did, sir. <laughs> like, um, but my dad uh, always looked for opportunities to, um, you know, show off his athletic driving prowess. <laughs> the other central relationship in your movie In a World is the one between your character Carol and and her sister, whose name is uh, Danny, and she's played by Michaela Watkins. And um, I wonder if you grew up with uh, a sister or sisters and what your relationship to her or them was like. Yeah, I have two. I have two sisters, two younger sisters, the two sisters that came of those two driving, those <laughs> those two maniac driving uh, SUV race car moments. Um, at Courtney McKenzie, and they are, you know, very dear to me. And um, my older brother, Luke, um is also in a way an inspiration for that character even though he's a boy um our interactions always were um 
have always been kind of us against everyone else. And, um, you know, not in a weird way or anything, but I think, you know, everybody's parents are divorced, but my parents are divorced too. And so I think sometimes when there is, you know, a, a sprinkle of chaos in a family, um, the two the two siblings, my brother and I definitely um, forged a unit um, for making each other laugh and, and sort of existing and traveling together. And, um, and definitely, I, I would consider him more I would dedicate Sister Code, which is um, which is in my movie quite often, um, to him as well as my sisters. So can, can he can you, be my Sister Code. Can you give me an example of when Sister Code came up between you and your brother, one that maybe is like an, an expired Sister Code situation? Well, Sister Code I made up for the movie. So I, I think— well, Sister Code or equivalent. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, I think the idea of making up new— you know, just to get something out of your sibling, you sort of make up bonding mechanisms. Um, but uh, we had one which was, <laughs> okay, there was one time where, you know, my brother, he, he's he's big. He's like, he's like 6'5 or something, or 6'4. And he, you know, when he started to grow up and not really know his strength, he would always kind of He'd be like, oh, I want to try this wrestling move on you. You know, I'd be like, ah, no, don't do it. And then he'd be like, oh, you're such a wimp. And then, I mean, he doesn't talk that way, but let's just go with that. Um, You know, you're such a wimp. And I'd be like, no, I'm not. And then, you know, we'd end up, you know, he'd kind of hit me in the face. And then somehow my head would hit a desk and then blood. And then uh, I'm going to tell mom. And he's like, don't tell mom. Listen. Anything. Listen to me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And then he would just sing. We would we would have... um this thing where we'd sing um, a cr- this you know the song by Cream in a white room with black cr- okay yeah. you know that song yeah okay. sure so for whatever reason that was our bonding song because we saw it once on television where it's like buy this new box set uh, for Cream and and that was the only excerpt that they used like so we the, didn't even like the heavy <laughs> heavy heavy seventies box set or something from- it was totally heavy seventies. <laughs> I think it was cream. I think it was just cream, but that's the only excerpt they used. Um, and we just thought it was funny. And so then for any time that, you know, blood or, oh, my God, by mistake, I just broke her arm or whatever it is, it would just be like, don't tell mom. In a white room with black curtains. Look at us. Look at look how fun we are. Look how fun. You know, and then I'd just be like, mom, <laughs> look at me. But I, um, so, yeah. <laughs> I we could I couldn't have put that in the movie because I couldn't afford cream. <laughs> <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Lake Bell. She wrote, directed, and stars in a new movie called In a World. The cast also features a pile of our favorite past guests like Ken Marino, Dimitri Martin, and Rob Corddry. I don't want to let this uh, conversation end without talking a little bit about Children's Hospital, which is um, one of my favorite television shows. Nice. Good. Uh, good man. Um, good taste. So I, it's, it would be difficult for me to describe Children's Hospital, which started as a sort of parody of um, hospital relationship shows uh, like Grey's Anatomy yeah. and, and has just become crazier and crazier as, as the years have worn on. And is a is a shockingly huge hit at at midnight on the Cartoon Network, um, and I want to play a clip from the <laughs> show just to give people a flavor of what like the volume of jokes that are happening I on can't it, and so on. Wait to hear what the hell you're going to play. So okay. y- you play one of the doctors in this hospital. 
Um, Dr. Cat Black. Yeah, which, uh, yes. And um, I'm not even going to get involved in the backstory of this hospital. It's, there is no backstory at this point. <laughs> it involves a lot of, it involves a lot of like uh, puns and so on. It involves a lot of puns, but not a lot of logic. Yes. Let's say that. So you, your character has gone into therapy. Uh, your therapist also works at the hospital. Uh, it's Dr. Cy Middleman, who's played by Henry Winkler, uh, who folks may know as... Uh, from Arrested Development, we'll say. Okay, okay. Uh, he, folks may know him as the Fonz. And this is just a montage of you in therapy. It's We should mention it's a it's a short show, and so just everything happens super, super fast. So here's, here's your character, Dr. Cat Black, in, in therapy. I always felt like those feelings were connected to my mother. You know, she just never made me feel like my father loved me enough. Someone's got to make money for the family. How about Kat? You know, she developed early. She's talented. They didn't have cheerleading in Senegal where I grew up. You know what our hobbies were? Malaria and blood diamonds. Yes, I just don't know whether my one-woman show should be mainly character-based or like songs or like stories. You know, have you seen my Puerto Rican girl? It's really good. Um, mira, mira, listen to me, okay? I don't like, I don't like American boys, you know? Daddy, can you see these tears? Because I cried them all by myself. <laughs> Thank you, doctor. I'm cured. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so it's it's a drama. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically every episode has that pace and tone. Um, and uh, is it hard to manage the very, or especially at the beginning, was it hard to manage this very, very specific tone, which is a couple of degrees off of the deadpan of um, of like a Zucker Brothers movie, but is also not the characters knowing what the comedy is? Yeah, it's you're totally right in that it's a pretty unique tone because now that I direct it, I'm always sort of like aware of what we have to, what the games and tropes we we adhere to, um, tonally at least. Um, but what I think initially it was was really sort of a spoof, but sort of absurdist and therefore taken very seriously. So every all the characters and their world is taken very seriously and played very real and grounded, though. Like you said, it moves very quickly, and therefore it becomes absurd in within seconds. Um, as and so uh, that is very unique unto itself. But I really do feel that over the years, it has now kind of made itself or found itself in this genre that is very unique and tonally uh, specific, you know, because now obviously we're not even in, we're not in our classic hospital setting. This year, our, our hospital is shut for termites, termite tenting. (laughs) So we are, uh, so we gain a lucrative contract on an army base in Japan in the pediatric, um, opening a pediatric section. So, um, so we shoot the whole show in quote unquote Japan, aka Alhambra, California. <laughs> um, you know, it's it is absurd, but it is strangely grounded in <laughs> it's not grounded in logic, but it is it is very unique in that um we don't comment on the joke whilst the joke is being made. 
I want to play a scene from one of the episodes of Children's Hospital that you directed. Um, this scene doesn't feature you acting, but I think it's a, it's an interesting homage to the Zucker Brothers' uh, oeuvre and the, de- the debt that Children's Hospital owes to, to those, but also, uh, but also shows the very specific tone of uh, Children's Hospital. So this is uh, Rob Hubel, uh, Zandi Hardick, and Nick Offerman, uh, who are cast members of the show, and they're just engaged in a hospital conversation. That's basically all you need to know. Dory! You're back. Oh, I was worried sick about you. Don't worry. She's safe in my capable yet calloused hands. Detective Chance Briggs. You plus-size woman's panty set. What's my old partner doing here? (laughs) Put her there. (laughs) You guys were cops together? Yeah, and we went to the same college. Who would have thought a couple of Oberlin grads would end up carrying badges? So what are you doing here, old boy? (laughs) Well, let's just say that I need a place to hide. That That I need need a place place to hide. hide. But surely you can't be serious. Oh, I am serious. And don't ever question my seriousness. <laughs> so it was so hard not to laugh. Um, yes, of course, right there, it, that is a direct homage. Um, and that is, you know, somewhat in the writing. Um, but I, I will say this about Children's Hospital. It continues to be such a joy to both play in and direct. Uh, and I think that, you know, the biggest lesson I learned on that show is that it really does make a difference to surround yourself with people that are like-minded and that have a great attitude and are happy to be there. And I did that absolutely within a world because, I mean, that's why you see Ken Marino there and Rob Corddry and Michaela Watkins and Dimitri Martin, who I knew from years ago in, in New York, and, uh, you know, Tig Notaro, who's one of my closest friends, and Nick Offerman. And, you know, I just, I, I, I was interested in, in surrounding myself with that kind of a team as well. I, w- I want to ask you uh, this question, which is, uh, first of all, I'm just going to stipulate um, that for anyone out there who can't see you, which is to say the whole radio audience, basically everyone except the engineer in New York, um, you're just a super pretty lady. So let that be stipulated. The second part Thank of this you. question is whether there is an attraction to you in doing either broad comedy or or writing and directing where – the natural gift of being a pretty lady isn't an important part of those things. And so it is, um, you know, what success you have in those areas has to do with whatever, hard work and sacrifice or whatever it is that you're supposed to appreciate doing. First of all, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. Um, you know what? I it's a first, it's it's <laughs> I think I think that <laughs> I am speechless. Um I I feel that, you know, looks um are you know, can be helpful to either make fun of or to embrace if you are secure enough or sort of vain enough to embrace them and sort of ride on that if that's what you got. But I think in comedy it's sometimes helpful because truly to be honest with you, if I'm frank, I feel that I, when I look in the mirror, I understand that I am attractive, but I understand also that, you know, attractive can lean one – I could lean one direction to being sort of, you know, glamorous if a movie wants me to do that. And then I could lean to the other side and kind of be like what me and my brother are, you know, hanging out, you know, him trying to wrestle me. And while we watch, you know, a VHS tape of Indiana Jones and I'm like, stop it, you know. And so I think as long as you have a healthy understanding of sort of who you are, what you look like, what you can – how you can use that, 
um, to make something funnier, you know, because sometimes it makes things funnier if 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 you're you know, all gussied up and looking like one thing, then the expectation, uh, you know, there's tension in the expectation of what you can and can't do. Um, and so I often like to play with that. Um, you know, I enjoyed uh, the juxtaposition of uh, sort of throwing myself almost wet and nude on the cover of Maxim magazine on the same year that I that my movie was at Sundance, you know. And um, I think... You can, as opposed to saying, well, now that you're a director, you really shouldn't dress that way or style yourself in this way. You should be very serious, you know. And I kind of feel like, look, I want my husband to think I'm hot, okay? I got to keep – I mean, I want a hot date with him later, so I want to continue to just be feminine and um, uh, express myself in that way because it's just a form of expression, you know. Well, Lake, I, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. So thanks for letting me be here. Lake Bell's new movie, In a World, which she wrote, directed, and in which she stars, is in theaters right now. And she's also on Children's Hospital, which you can catch right now on uh, uh, Adult Swim. Each week, we like to close the program with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. These days, the con comes in over the Internet. Phishing and lottery scams show up in your email inbox from thousands of miles away. There's no human touch. But in the 1920s and 30s, that's when a flim-flam man was a flim-flam man. Which brings me, not coincidentally, to one of my favorite books, The Big Con by David Maurer. Have you ever seen The Sting? The Big Con in that movie came straight from The Big Con, the book. Moore actually had to sue them for credit. Moore was a linguist who specialized in the underworld. He spent his life talking to criminals about their lives. Pickpockets, moonshine makers, confidence men. The men who gain your confidence and take away your money. In the 1930s, Moore traveled the country, making friends with these guys and learning about their world. The book was the result. The Big Con is a folk history of the con, a manual of the con, and most centrally, a celebration of the language of the con. Read it, and you'll not only learn about men like Limehouse Chappie and the seldom-seen kid, you'll also learn how they talked and lived and worked. In some ways, the Big Con is a manual, from the roper to the store to the fixer, short con to long, cold pokes, grifters, and finks. All the hustles and their players are carefully detailed. And speaking of players, the Big Con is also a reliquary of beautiful characters. If I were a a rapper or a wrestler or a neighborhood big shot, I'd love to have one of these names. The square-faced kid or slobbering Bob or the money-from-home kid or plunk drucker or Devil's Island Eddie or the harem-scarum kid or how about the Indiana Wonder? Geez, that is a good one. Here's what's great about the con. It allows us to imagine having perfect control over our world, to be the author of our own fiction, 
to live vibrantly and criminally the way we wanted to when we were kids, no rules, and to do so with risk but no consequence. So you get the thrill but not the slapdown. No moral consequence either because, as the con man says, you can't cheat an honest man. The Big Con is a thrilling escape into a crazy world, separated from us by 70 years, but no less exciting today than then. But if you read it and you get swept up, there's one really, really super important thing to remember. You can't give yourself a nickname. That's the important thing. Oh, and I guess the part about you can't cheat an honest man, and but mostly the nickname bit. That's my outshot. In a world where this week's bullseye was coming to an end, one brave man assembled a team to rage against the dying of the light. The producer, Julia Smith. Agile, intelligent, stealthy. Enhance. Enhance. Print that. That's our man. The senior producer, Nick White. Also agile, intelligent, and stealthy but slightly less so. I said coffee, dang it! The computer expert, intern Henry Malofsky. It's a telnet virus. I'll have to hack my way into the mainframe. And introducing Manya as the sexy but volatile engineer at NPR's New York Bureau. Plus chart-topping hit music from the Go Team and hip-hop superstar Dan Wally. It's the can't-miss audio event of the summer. Bullseye. The end. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 